Let's turn in our Holy Scriptures to Luke chapter 19. And we'll begin in verse 41. And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saving to, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's bow in prayer. Oh, Father. You sent your only son. How deep is your love that you would send your son to be mocked and killed for our sakes. Lord, we love you so much. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would bless this day, bless this time, and bless Grant as he shares your word with us. In your holy name, Jesus, amen. Amen. I tell you, God read by a godly person is a, is a special thing. Thank you very much, my dear friend Janice. <clears throat> Who are these extra people on the worship team today? <laughs> I don't deserve it. Get to sing with my, my parents as a... It's a, a gift too good. We should care. I'm going to say something controversial. You ready? We should care about how Jesus feels about things. Oh, put that up there. Now, I think we spend a lot of time uh, trying to figure out and trying to claim that we know what Jesus thinks about things. Jesus thinks that's good. Jesus thinks that's bad. Maybe we uh, have a lot of information about what Jesus did. So we look at, and in fact, this is, uh, I mean, how many of you have either offhandedly or in a joking way or, it, or heard somebody in a really serious way go, hey, if you ever get angry, remember, remember Jesus flipped tables. And you go, oh, well, maybe that's an option. Maybe that's a tool I could put in my tool bag is I get angry enough, I can flip tables. Be sure, be sure I'm angry about something that is good or whatever. <clears throat> but we need to dig a little deeper. Every once in a while, the New Testament gives us not only what Jesus did or not only gives us clues about how Jesus thinks, but it opens up Jesus' heart and we get to see how Jesus feels. Do you remember when Jesus fed 5,000 people with a Lunchable? Do you remember that story? And, um, and it said he looked out at, at these people and he had compassion on them, which... 5,000 people go to the hills to hear a traveling preacher and didn't bring any food. Like this little boy is the only guy who thought maybe I should bring lunch. You and I might not have looked out with compassion. We might have looked out and gone, man, what are these? If these dummies would have brought dinner, then we could have, you know, finished our great speech or whatever, whatever it is. But we get to see that Jesus looks out at hungry people, maybe even whom are hungry because they didn't think it through, and has compassion. And that's important. We go, oh, okay. So it's not only about what I do, it's not only about what I think, but I want my heart to be like Jesus' heart, too. I not only want to think like Jesus, and I don't only want to act like Jesus, but I want God to so transform my heart that I feel things like Jesus. 
Um, today we're going to look at three little scenes that show us how Jesus feels about the world, and we'll need to ask ourselves a couple of questions. We'll, we'll ask, what is it exactly that's the cause of this emotional reaction from Jesus? We'll, we'll dig in a little bit and go, it, it might not be immediately obvious why Jesus is doing what he's doing. So we'll dig in a little bit and, and try to figure that out. And then also, we'll each individually have to ask, do I have the same emotional reactions that Jesus does? This is more difficult. Don't steal anything. For each of us, stealing looks the same, right? Like go into a store, take something that's not yours, leave without saying sorry. That was stealing. And that looks the same for all of us. But we all start with different temperaments. It's pretty difficult to say this is how you should feel about something. Some of us burn a little hot. Some of us, something happens and we just see red. Some of us, um, I feel like I have an anger problem, but it's a slow burning anger problem. You know what I mean? I'm like driving away going, oh man, I'm mad about the thing that happened a half an hour ago. You know what I'm talking about? Um, so we all feel a little differently about the world naturally. And some emotions are simply, how do you say that? S simply personality driven. Just some people have a big squishy. You see a, a kitty and go, oh, the kitty. I look at a kitty and go, looks like allergy season. <laughs> Let's go. Get it out of here. Right? Like we all just, I'm not a very, like I, I, I think I'm a soft-hearted guy naturally. Like I feel bad when things happen or something. But I don't pick up on emotional cues like everybody else sometimes. I don't know um, exactly what it is, but there'll be times everybody else is like, either crying or cheering, and I'm like, I, what? I might have missed something. What exactly is going on here? What are we sad about? What are we happy about? You know, so we're all just a little bit different, and that's just personality stuff. But there's also a Christian maturity piece where each of us say, this is the personality, this is the emotional life that I was handed. This is the emotional, like, deck that I was, or hand that I was dealt, should we say. And each of us want God, each believer, as we are discipled by Jesus, want God to so not only transform our minds, but to transform our hearts. That we would no longer hide behind, well, I'm just a hothead, or I just have a big squishy heart, or whatever, but rather we would go, God, I want to feel about the world like you feel about the world. Not only think like you think, not only act like you act, no, I want to feel about the world. When, when you see somebody in a situation, I want to have the same emotion you have. So let's not read these passages and think, like, let's not agree too easily with these familiar stories. It's really easy to look at Jesus flipping tables and go, in my life, I'm in the Jesus role. I'm going to go find some tables to flip. There's churches that do bad things. Let's flip tables. There's governments that treat people badly. Let's flip tables. It's much harder to go, is there any place in my life where if Jesus walked in, he'd flip my table? Let's ask that question. We could go on and talk about how other people are lame some other time. We only get about an hour a week to sit here in self-reflection and together communally seek God. So let's ask, God, is there anything in us that's worthy of flipping a table? Then also, even as we see Jesus weep over Jerusalem and we go, Jerusalem, so lame. Yeah, look how far they've fallen. And let's not be arrogant enough to think that, Jesus, that there's the church collectively or in individual churches that there's nothing that may, might cause Jesus to weep as he looks at us too. And I, I'm, I, I, you, can, you can make a whole bunch of money writing books about what's lame about the church. I, I think the church is beautiful. That's not what we're talking about. But I am talking about as we see Jesus' emotions in these stories, let's not automatically think we're in the Jesus role. But rather, let's let Jesus also gaze at us and say, if there is air in us, may our hearts be transformed to be more like his. So let's, uh, let's look at these three scenes. Scene number one is Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. And Janice just read this to you, so I won't read it all. But, but you see Jesus see Jerusalem and then begin weeping. So what feeling, like just off the top of your head, and I know, okay, I, I think there's a, this is like a money grab book, I think I could, I think I could write this book, and it would just be like, like instantly, uh, I wasn't planning on saying this, so it's probably a bad idea, but I always say that, that I have a box of eight crayons for emotions, and Tiffany has a box of 164. So 
So all the same spectrum. We feel all the same things, but sometimes I lack the ability to articulate exactly. I can say what I'm thinking like crazy. Look at me go right now. But, um, but when it comes to emotions, I've got like mad, sad, uh, I don't know, happy, <laughs> excited. I don't know. Like I'm almost out. I'm at four. Um, but, but then some people are a little more emotive and go, oh, there's all these gradients. Are you sad? No. Are you mad? No. So when you look at Jesus, they're weeping over Jerusalem. It's more complicated than just he's sad, isn't it? No, there's a particular kind of feeling he's having when he's look at, looking at Jerusalem. It's, it's not just sadness. It's regret. It's that feeling when you get when something could have been so good. When there was just no reason for, for this bad thing to happen. It's also love. You know, we don't tend to stop and weep looking at people that we don't care about that much. But as Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, we see this deep sorrow, maybe even deep, I don't know if regret's the right word, but something along the lines of a great missed opportunity. And then we also just reflect on how much he loves the people in this city and the city itself. I'm told that on the road from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, uh, and I know some of you have walked on this road, and I'm, I'm jealous as I could be. Let's all go. Um, next year in Jerusalem. Um, but I'm told that the road from the Mount of Olives dips down so you can't see Jerusalem for a minute. Like as you're traveling, Mount of Olives, believe it or not, Mount. Temple Mount, not going to believe it, Mount. And then as you go through the valley, there's a time when you can't see the next peak. So you can't see Jerusalem. And then you come over a little rise. I always, every time I, talk, I think about this, I think about uh, hiking Garapada. Anybody done the Sobranes hike out there in Garapada? And it's, you have to do it once, but once was enough for me. People do it every weekend. I'm like, you go, man. I'm going to be walking on the flat <laughs> like, trail along the beach. Um, but, but when you walk that, it's just up, 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 up. And you feel like you're going forever. And then you crest this first hill and you go, oh my gosh, all I can see is another peak. And so you go down and down. Then you got to go up, up, up. And that second peak, you look and the ocean is just beautiful. And you're like, ah, I think we're going to make it. And I wonder if it's that kind of thing as you come up that road from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem and you see Jerusalem as you come up over this, this, um, this knoll, this peak, and if you're a pilgrim traveler on your way to the Passover feast, like this whole crowd that is following Jesus is, I bet you got butterflies. I bet this was to see the temple right there on the edge of the city, just glittering gold and, and beautiful white. And I bet it was just a glorious, glorious sight. And this is the, the place that you've walked for maybe weeks to come. And there it is, the place where you're going to worship and have a, a wonderful feast and party. But Jesus did not come over that filled with joy. He came over it filled with sorrow. He was not overwhelmed with the beauty of the temple, but he was overwhelmed with the sin of the temple and even overwhelmed with the destruction that he knows the temple is going to experience in the not too distant future. It's a negative emotion that only happens when somebody you love runs their life into a ditch. We all think it's sad when a young adult in the world walks away from the Lord and starts making self-destructive decisions and ends up, you know, wrecking their future. Or you go, oh my gosh, it's going to be a long way back. We all think that's sad. But when it's your cousin, your brother, your child, there is an ache. You had so much promise. You were so smart. You were the life of every party. You had a gleam in your eye. You lit up the room. But because of the choices you've made, I see destruction coming, not glory. I think that's what Jesus is feeling as he looks at Jerusalem. And in that same way, it was senseless. Jesus sees that Jerusalem, David's city, the city that was supposed to be ground zero for the reign of God spreading over all of the earth, has so gone astray that they didn't even get anything for it. 
It's not like it's a city giving, given over to idolatry, but it's going to, I mean, for the next thousand years, this is going to be the capital. No, as Jesus is standing there, they're about 40 years away from absolute destruction. They have made compromises with Rome. They have made compromises with Greece. They've made idolatrous compromises after idolatrous compromises. And they felt like there was a gain, but the gain was so short term, it was going to end up because this is the way idolatry always works. You give and you give and you give and you give and you feel like you're hanging on and then all of a sudden it destroys your life. That's still the way idolatry works. We call that addiction. A lot of times, it's idolatry. It's giving yourself over to something else that is not God. Hosea 8 has this line about idolatry. Hosea is a book where there's a lot of just like mocking Jerusalem, mocking Israel and, and, uh, and Judah for, for their idolatry. And there's a line in there that says, they sow the wind, they shall reap the whirlwind. They sowed the wind. What do you know about the wind? Is it real? Can you grab it? Can you benefit from it? Windmills and sailboats aside? You, you sow the wind, you sowed nothing. That's the way idolatry is. When we give ourselves over to things that are not God, and it doesn't matter if it's you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, or the idea of a good family, or the American dream, or whatever it is, but when we give ourselves fully to something that is not God, we're sowing nothing. But it's not nothing that pops up. It's destruction that pops up. You sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. So as Jerusalem, over time, had gotten more and more idolatrous, more and more not following the God of the Old Testament, but rather sort of following Yahweh out of the side of their mouth, but really a very cosmopolitan Roman a uh, Hellenistic city full of, you know, all the idols that every other city has, they had sown nothing. They thought they were investing in the future, making peace with the idols. But instead, they were sowing nothing. And now Jesus goes, what's your, what's your destruction is coming? You're reaping the whirlwind. And that's important to think about as a local church. What are we sowing? It's important to think about you know, as the church, it's important to think about individually, as families and individuals. As we make compromises and we think, oh, this compromise I've made with idolatrous things, with things that are not God, with my own appetites or with, with uh, whatever the world's offering, as I make those, it feels like I'm actually keeping the peace. I can still be a Christian and have a little of this on the side. And we think, you know, even if I'm sowing nothing, what's going to pop up is nothing. There's not going to be consequences. Jesus sees so clearly, when you sowed that nothingness, destruction is what's going to come. That's what's going to bloom. And it's breaking Jesus' heart. So, you know, for us, when there's compromise, when there's syncretism, do you know what syncretism is? Syncretism is when we, uh, ha we, we try to mesh uh, good, solid biblical theology with the ideas of the world. So we start, it looks political a lot, so we start using the Bible to defend our favorite um, political idea, politician, whatever, but it also looks like, it, it also looks social a lot. We use the Bible to defend our favorite style of living or whatever, and it, it's not a biblical-centered, I'm going to do whatever the Bible says, rather it's a me-centered, I've decided how I want to live, and it turns out if you know the Bible good enough, you can make it say whatever you want. So syncretism is when you go, I'm going to live with one foot over here and one foot over here. I'm going to live with one foot firmly planted in my Christian thoughts and ideas and traditions. And I'm going to live with the other foot planted in the greed, the power, the whatever it is that our world would say is the good life. When it's greed. When it's the hope that we would reap something good from that. When it's insisting on peace of the, with the world instead of peace with God. When it's power, when it's wealth. What's blooming is destruction and it's breaking Jesus' heart. Verse 42 says, would that even you, I love that even you, because Jesus I think is looking at centuries of 
idolatry. He's that you know the Herod's temple didn't get built overnight, and Rome and and you know Alexander the Great was you know hundreds of years ago, and and all of this stuff didn't happen immediately. And before that, there was Assyria and and Babylon, and and all of this happened. the The idolatry of this place was not a, a new thing. So there's centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries of of people compromising a little bit. And there's ups and downs. Sometimes, you know, somebody reads the scriptures out loud and people go, we need to repent. But overall, it's been a slide for centuries. And so Jesus goes, would that even you, this generation, right now, like I, I, even if after all of the idolatry of your fathers, if right now you would know what makes for peace, you could live a good life. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but they're hidden from your eyes. How are they hidden? Is Jesus hiding things from people? Is God hiding the good life? What did they not know? Well, they didn't know the things that the angels had announced at Jesus' birth, the things that the crowd we talked about last week were shouting, that peace on earth comes to those on whom God's favor rests. That peace on earth does not come with the strongest or the mightiest or the most powerful or the wealthiest, but peace on earth comes in our hearts as we obey him, as we walk faithfully with him. Those, that's the means of peace. And they didn't know it. They thought peace was going to be found through might and compromise. Peace is available for, throw, for those who throw their cloaks at the feet of Jesus' donkey Peace is available for those who sing Hosanna and declare His good works. Peace is available for those who are shouting the praises of Jesus. Peace doesn't come with submitting to, to being in step with the world. Peace comes as we submit to Jesus and are in step with Him. And you really can't do both. As Jesus is looking at this absolutely beautiful but compromised temple, I think this is the thing. You can't be in step with the way of the world and in step with the kingdom of God at the same time. It's not possible. Like practically speaking, you can't deny yourself and build your kingdom at the same time. So, peace is fruit. It's what happens when, we cut, when we're in step with the Holy Spirit. You remember that? That the... Uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit when we're in step with Jesus is love, peace, joy. So these people have tried to keep peace by submitting to Rome. They've tried to keep peace by rebelling against Rome. On Wednesday night, we kind of went through the, the four different ways that, um, that the people in Jerusalem had tried to deal with Rome. Some of them are, let's kill them. Some of them are, let's go hide. Some of them are, let's try to get along. You know, there's lots of different theories. They tried all of them. What they hadn't tried is obedience and faithfulness to God. And the destruction is going to be great. Jesus isn't just speaking esoterically. You know, he's not just speaking as some religious leader who goes, oh, if you don't follow God, there's going to be destruction. No, rather, here at this point, we see Jesus fully informed about what the future is going to look like. And he knows for sure that the general Titus is coming in in 70 AD and is going to knock this temple down. All this stuff that they've compromised to keep. And isn't that the way it is in our lives too? Every time you see somebody fall, every time there's a public figure, especially a religious public figure that has a great fall, it's always one compromise at a time. It's always like, well, I had a sin, but if I knew if I, knew if I was honest about it, that it would cause problems. And so I just kind of shoved it away. I thought it wouldn't be a big deal. But then it turned into a little more and then it turned into a little more. And then by the time I kind of got rolling, well, I couldn't come clean then because... Like at that point, I had a history here and people are counting on me and I don't want the whole thing to tumble. And then, and then when it falls, you go, it didn't fall because of today. It fell because even now, the day before, if you just decide to walk in the light, if you just go, and I, we need to be a church, quite frankly, every church needs to be a church where any of us could, please don't do it now because I'm on a roll, but 
any of us could at a Bible study kind of go, I am a dirt bag and I am trapped in my sin. And instead of going, have you prayed about it? We would all go, thank you so much. Me too. Let's walk this journey together. You're not perfect. You, You came to the right place. In fact, perfect people, why would they go to church? No, it's us that know we need a Savior that should come. So Jesus sees this destruction coming. He sees what's coming very clear. He sees the rejection that he's going to experience in Jerusalem. He sees the cross and he sees 70 A.D. And from the very beginning, you know, uh, no, I I won't read it. I don't want to keep you too long because I want you to stay for the meeting after. But from the very beginning, God had made it clear. I was going to, if I, if I had time, walk you through Deuteronomy 30. It's familiar to you. It's the passage where Moses says, I am calling heaven and earth as witnesses against you. There's a courtroom, and the witnesses are all heaven and earth. There's no hiding. And if you will choose life and obey me, you'll be peace. You'll be a peaceful nation. You'll prosper Things will go fine. You'll live a long time in this land I'm giving you. But if you go after other idols and disobey me, your destruction will be great. You know, we love clinging to the promises of God. How about clinging to that promise of God? If you disobey and go your own way after idolatry, the destruction will be great. There's a choice. Jerusalem had a choice. I have a choice and so do you. And as Jesus grieves deeply over the city and the people that he loves, what he's experiencing is generation after generation, all the way up to the current generation of choosing death instead of life, of choosing themselves instead of faithfulness, choosing idols instead of faithful worship. That's why verse 44 says, says, uh, you did not know the time of your visitation. I, I think it was the CSB, I was the Christian Standard Bible I was reading this week that said, said it much more plainly. I thought it was great. It just said, you didn't know I was here. God has arrived back in the temple and they just want to fight him. So again, destruction is coming, not because you weren't strong enough. If I was going to tell you there's a way for your family to avoid destruction, not sorrow, not tragedy, that comes to every life, but even there are lives that are destroyed with no sorrow or tragedy. There's other families and lives that have a lot of tragedy and yet they're not destroyed. And if I could tell you you can avoid destruction, how would you do it? You might think, load up, man. Let's get enough. Let's get enough, I don't know, food, I don't know. Uh, shelter, (laughs) ammo. I don't know what we'd say. What if I said the teaching of this passage very clearly is that protection comes when we obey Him, when we walk with Him. Jesus is not saying destruction is coming because you weren't strong enough. The problem wasn't political. The the problem wasn't political in the Roman Empire, which is like the least fair version of, you know, any kind of structure. Unless you're Roman, which they weren't. The problem wasn't military, but rather the problem was spiritual disobedience. Man, we need to feel how Jesus feels. And it is really easy to go, yeah, man, there's churches that are bad, and they teach bad things. They're spiritually disobedient. You're not the destructor. We're not the angel of death. You don't have to worry about that. Let the weeds grow with the wheat. Rather, we should be introspective and go, hey, is this ever something I struggle with? The best thing the church can do to be a healthy church I would even say this, the best thing the church could do for our culture, the best thing our church could do for our country is is not just like dominate everything, but rather to just be obedient, 
The secret to making the world a better place is recognizing that Jesus is here and submitting to him. So then there's this second scene. Jesus kind of flips some tables and says he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. So what's Jesus feeling here and why? Um, so he's continued to walk into the city from the Mount of Olives, and Mark clarifies this a little bit. Um, Mark tells us a little more of the story that Jesus went to the temple at the end of the day. He looked around and went back to Bethany for the night, and the story we read here in verses 45 and 46 is actually the next day. So there's no continuity problems between the Gospels, but that is a clarifying, I think that's a clarifying and, and helpful truth or helpful detail because Jesus is not like seeing red here. Jesus didn't walk in the temple and go, what? And like get all Steven Seagal and like, you know, start. <laughs> it wasn't like an 80s action movie. You know what I mean? It wasn't like he went in and was like, there's going to be justice. Like that wasn't it. It wasn't that. But rather, he's not reacting without thinking. This isn't a gut reaction. He doesn't walk into the temple, freak out, see red, go nuts, and start flipping tables. Rather, Jesus has seen and surveyed what's going on. He's gone home and he's thought about it. I'm sure he prayed about it, slept on it, and returned. Doesn't feel any better about it and an in, because an injustice in the temple is happening and it's making Jesus angry. So again, I don't think this is merely anger, but I think this is an act of justice. You remember that our version of our definition of justice in the Bibles might be a little different. We need to have a definition of justice like those scriptures, which is everybody having what they need, like the world being fair. That's a just world. It's not just bad guys getting what's coming to them or whatever, but rather it's, it's everybody living a fair life. And Jesus walks into the temple and goes, this is not fair. So let's look at exactly what's happening here. Um, um, where am I? Am I on the right thing? Yeah. Um, Jesus walks in the temple. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. So, you know, I've heard this, this passage, uh, you know, to say that it was bad to have a bake sale or a youth fundraiser or even collect an offering on a Sunday morning. Giving boxes are in the back. Um, but let's look at the situation. This is very different than all those things. Jesus enter, It says Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. So where were the people selling stuff? In the temple. This was not around the corner. This was not that somebody had sold, set up a, a sacrifice selling shop you know, in the middle of town so somebody could get a sheep on their way in. No, this was in the temple. They had violated the holiest place. And in fact, historians tell us that this is probably a pretty new thing that was happening. Maybe just a couple of years, the temple sellers had moved from outside the temple to inside the temple. It's not just that it's bad to sell stuff, but there was an intention for this space. It was supposed to be sacred land like Eden, like the tabernacle, like Solomon's temple. It's supposed to be where God and his people commune. This was intended as holy ground, and it was being used as common ground. These guys could have opened a shop down the street. It would have been fine. Charge whatever you want. But this wasn't the place. You know, I've spent time reflecting on how we might apply this, and you know, it makes me kind of go, okay, let's break it down. Where's the temple now? Well, we are the temple. This is the temple. Not the building. This wasn't the temple when I was in here this morning praying over the pews by myself. But now it is because we are here gathered in the name of Jesus. It's our community. It's our church that's the temple. It's the church that's the temple. Our fellowship, our little church, the church around the world are intended to be place of, places of worship and unity and love. And I think we violate this provision when we treat each other as common instead of sacred. When we walk in and see each other, 
we have to have this idea among us that we are holy ground. That there is unity, not because we think alike or all agree on whatever, but there is unity because we are children of God and He is building us up into a spiritual temple. That each of us are part of this, like, let's take our shoes off. We are on holy ground. And so when we belittle each other, when we're dismissive and rude, when we're unwilling to forgive when one of us is dumb, it happens. I've heard of it happening. We are treating what is holy as common. There might be a way I ref basketball games, high school basketball games, junior high basketball games. You're not going to believe this, but not everybody's nice to me. What it means to ref basketball games is go do wind sprints for an hour and a half while you're getting yelled at by 100 people. That's kind of what the job is. And I like it. It's great. I love basketball. I love, be, I love being with students. You know, it's, it's, it's cool. But there's a proper way, like it's okay to be, hey, ref, you're an idiot. I go, I know. You know, that's fine. It's, I've been an idiot before. But when we, when we take out there, guarded, trying to be the right one, and we bring that in here, I think we're treating what is holy as common. When we judge each other by the rule of the world, when we say the, the, the good-looking and successful people, they're the important ones, I think we're treating what is holy as common. When we think might makes right, I think we're treating as common what is holy. Which is why, you know, practically speaking, I know I've frustrated people sometimes about this stuff. It's why we're not passing out voter guides or uh, uh, business cards for your business. Hey, let's all go support uh, the business. of some, This is not a network is what I'm trying to say. This is a temple. And we are here as children of God to worship the God who is the king of heaven and earth. And when we treat it like, and by God's grace, we just don't have very much of that around here. But when we treat it like, you know, the local social club, we're taking what is intended to be holy and treating it as common. There's so much common in our lives. We don't need more common. There's so little sacred, so little holy space in our lives. And these sellers have neglected that. Not only is it breaking Jesus' heart, but it's made him angry. But there's even more to this idea. And I think, oh man, what happened to that slide? I had a great slide and I don't know what I did with it. That's too bad. I had a slide of two hot dogs. And I think I can explain what the sellers were doing best using hot dogs. I found, I worked so hard on this, you know, I, you know, I always pray, God, if, I, if there's air in me, would you please shut me up and not let me be, you know, not let me harm these people I love. So maybe the hot dog thing was bad. <laughs> I had a picture of a Costco hot dog and a hot dog you could buy at Giant Stadium. One of them is $1.50. One of them is $7.50. They're the same hot dog. They taste the same, whatever. Well, one of them... Why is one of those hot dogs $1.50 and the other $7.50? Well, one is advertising. I seriously, sincerely doubt Costco's making any money on $1.50 for a hot dog and a soda, but they want us to go spend $400 on toilet paper. And after dragging, some of you have had this experience, after dragging a wandering husband and four children around Costco for two hours, a hot dog is like, thank you, Costco for affordable dinner that nobody will fight me about. That's great. Now, why is a hot dog $7.50 at a giant stadium? What's it called now? AT&T? No, what is it? Oracle. Oracle. Thank you. I knew, I knew somebody. I, was, I had this whole thing ready for Anaheim Stadium because I'm an Angel fan, but I was like, nobody will like that. We've got to go Giants. It's just an issue of supply and demand. What are you going to do? You're at the game. They didn't let you bring a dog in. What are you going to do? Smuggle in your own hot dog? Gross. You're going to keep a hot dog? Like, where are you going to keep that hot dog? 
down your purse or your man bag? Come on, you're not smuggling in your own hot dog. Smell like hot dog the whole way. <laughs> what are you going to do, not eat a hot dog? You're not going to not, come on. You're an American. It's a baseball game. You're eating a hot dog. <laughs> so what are you going to do? It's just supply and demand. We all, and even we all know if we're, going to a, if we're going to a ball game, you got kind of a $7.50 hot dog budget. You might roll your eyes, ah, that's really expensive. But you don't go, what? They're only $1.50 at Costco. No, you get it. You know why. It's one of the reasons my family doesn't go to many games. There's six of us. It's far. We don't even root for teams that are close. My favorite team is six hours away. You know, when I was a kid, I went to Angel Games for two bucks. We lived in a neighborhood. We could, like, ride our bikes, or we knew where to park around the corner. It was $2 to get into right field, the same, like, degenerates up there, every ball game. It was great. Go to 50, 60 games a game, uh, 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 a season, right? It was great. But, man, to, like, take my family all the way, uh, it's prohibitive. They know their market. The reason they're not worried about the reason hot dog prices are not coming down is there's plenty of people buying 750 hot dogs. They don't need me. And if people stop going, they might go, oof, we need people. Let's lower the price. Just supply and demand. That's fine if you're talking about hot dogs at a ball's game. In fact, I'm fine. Don't, don't cry for me. I've got the MLB package at home, an, ex, uh, an exorbitantly large television, and Costco hot dogs. <laughs> Things are fine in my life. But what was happening at the temple was the same principle applied to access to the holy spaces. These pilgrims would have traveled from all over, maybe walking for weeks. And when they got to Jerusalem, to the temple, they needed a sacrifice. Not only a sacrifice, but a lamb without blemish. I don't know how hard it is to say you're in North Africa somewhere on business. I don't know how hard it is to get a lamb from North Africa to Jerusalem and have it not have a sprained ankle when you get there. But that had to be incredibly difficult. And not only that, but even though this was a largely agrarian society, not everybody was a sheep herder. Some were fishermen and some were builders and some were scholars and all that stuff. So they too would need to buy an animal when they got there. So these sellers began to take advantage of the situation because like hot dogs at a ball game, what are you going to do? Not go into the temple? You walked all the way here. No, you're going to pay. You're going to pay whatever we charge. So people would travel all that way either to be price gouged or simply turned away. So Jesus isn't angry that commerce is going on in the temple. That's not what Jesus is angry about. Jesus is angry that all of those who came and who should have been welcomed in the temple as people wanting to worship instead were oppressed, were denied access. That to get into the temple, you had to be wealthy successful, or leave. This isn't the first time Jesus has made a point like this. You remember him saying, hey, if you do anything to keep a child out of the kingdom, why don't you just put a millstone around your neck and jump into the water? You remember in Matthew 23, he told the Pharisees, you load people up with burdens that you're not willing to help them carry. You cross land and sea to make proselytes, and then you make them twice as much of a child of hell as you are. What I'm saying, and this is not the first time that this exact thing has made Jesus mad. In fact, you can help me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the only thing we see Jesus mad about, that the people of God who are supposed to be the welcoming committee instead act like bouncers. We set up a law or a price this is what the world thinks. By the way, when we had our pumpkin patch out here, David met everyone in the neighborhood. And one of the most common questions was, how much does it cost to go to your church? People don't know. They don't know. They just don't know. We have this idea. But we like, anybody comes, we'd be so welcoming. Maybe not. If they're dressed appropriately, we might. But they don't know it. Are we really welcoming if they don't know that they're being welcomed? 
But that's not even the situation this. These were people who were worshipers. These were people who did want to go into the temple. And instead, they're being seen as a source of income. So the thing that makes Jesus angry is when people are supposed to be welcoming people into the presence of God are making it harder for people to be in the presence of God. Jesus quotes Isaiah 56 as he accuses these sellers. Let me read Isaiah 56, 7 to you. It says, these I will bring, this is the whole house of prayer thing. He says, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be a house of prayer for all people. So the point of the temple, this beautiful picture, was supposed to be that it wasn't just Israel's temple. It was the temple where people from all over would be welcomed into the presence of God. And instead, it's not even every Jewish person that can get in. They're even keeping out common Jews. Israel was supposed to be just the beginning. God desired all people to flow into the temple. And instead, the leaders were making it hard, even for common Jews. We should take this seriously. We might have an idea of displeasing God with personal sin. Like, we've all been told it's bad to say naughty words, right? We know. Don't look at dirty pictures. Don't say naughty words. That's all God wants from us, isn't it? We know not to steal. Or maybe... There might be some other things, but we should take seriously God's displeasure when we behave in such a way that makes God seem inaccessible to the world. When we do things that put barriers to people having access to God, that's what made Jesus mad. There is one stumbling stone, and it's Jesus. If people stumble over who Jesus is, well, then they've made a choice about the real, the real and only choice anybody really has to make. But if people stumble over our attitude, or if people stumble over our sin, or if people stumble over our sense of superiority, then we've made the house of prayer into a den of robbers. When we put moral burdens on people, when greed tarnishes our reputation, when lust tarnishes our reputation, when politics tarnish our reputation. Sorry, I didn't know I wrote that so many times. You know, but while I'm, while I'm on it, do you know what the word evangelical means? It comes from the word evangelion. It means we're people of the good news. That's what the word evangelical means. Is anybody who's people of the good news. And my Apple News app says actually that it's a voting block. Can you see? Can you see? What if we got back to just being people of the good news? That'd be all right. We should demand, here's even this. I've, now, I'm sorry, this has, been kind of, this has been kind of preachy. It's, you know, a problem with the job. We should require deep holiness out of ourselves and not the world. But we kind of do the other. <laughs> we kind of give ourselves a break. Because after all, Jesus died for that too. Not untrue. But then, when the world is sinful, we go, oh, these people. When we do things that keep people out of the presence of God, Jesus wants to flip a table. Lastly, this, this third and, and final scene, oh, is, I, I screwed up the PowerPoint, sorry about that. This third scene is uh, Jesus is teaching daily at the temple and the chief priests and scribes and the principal men of the temple were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all, for all the people who were hanging on his words. And I'd like to tell you that we, we think there's something in the middle, but there's not. Those are your options. You either destroy, want to destroy Jesus or you hang on his words. You either go, well, I'm going to see what Jesus said and then I'm going to decide for myself. Or... You say, Jesus' word is my, not my will, but your will. 
humility. Intense pursuit of Jesus instead of the idols. No compromise. Two big ideas in conclusion, and I'll, I'll be done. First, the world gets better when the church is obedient. Not when the church wins culture wars. Doesn't work. We've done it before. Lots of history. The world gets better when the church is obedient to Jesus. The best thing we could do for the world is simply obey Jesus ourselves. Two, we are the welcoming committee, not the bouncers. Amen? Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to worship you today. This is holy ground, Lord. We feel this is sacred space. Lord, it's, uh, uh, Lord we don't take ourselves very seriously. We, I know all the flaws. In fact, I don't even know all the flaws of me. I'm sure you know flaws of me. I haven't even figured out yet. Lord, we are, we are nothing special apart from you. Lord, we know that we should not take ourselves too seriously. And yet, God, we take you as the one and only one that matters. We want to take you as the holy one who has called us to be holy and take our position in your kingdom so seriously in our lives. God, would you teach us to be welcoming instead of put burdens in front of people who want to get into your presence? Lord, would you teach us to be those who obey you so single-mindedly that we don't get distracted by the arguments that the world's got? God, would you, Lord, we're a little church. There's not a whole lot of us here, and yet we have a desire to be a place that would shine like a lighthouse in Seaside, that people would know what obedience looks like, not because we're great, but because we're humble. Because we love each other, even though we're, you know, not perfect people. God, would you teach us not only to think like you, would you teach us to feel like you and to obey you fully? In Jesus' name, amen.